podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to Two Footed Podcast. It is Thursday, the 29th of April, and we are brought to you by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider, allow you to go online, change your location, access American Netflix, access Now TV outside the UK, access Peacock if you've got a buddy that'll lend you that US credit card or debit card. Also keeps your data safe online. LibertyShield.com, use the code EPLVPN to get 20% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. Right, folks, it is Thursday, so it is Twitter day. But before we get to that, we did have some football last night. Manchester City 2-1 winners over PSG in Paris. Great result for City. Performance has been massively overhyped. Gary Lineker, Dan Walker and others saying it's one of the best performances ever by an English team away from home. No, it's not. City's performance last year over against Real Madrid was far more impressive. City have had a couple of far more impressive away performances than this. But I mean, I don't know how you could say it was a great performance when they got comprehensively outplayed for the first half. Should really have gone in 2 or 3 nil down got outplayed for the first 15 minutes of the second half, and then did play really well for the last 30, but both goals were flukes. Let's be clear on that. Both goals they scored were flukes. Now, Marquinhos had put PSG 1-0 up with a great header, beat Ruben Diaz to the ball, uh, the mighty Ruben Diaz, um, and powered a header past Ederson. PSG were dominant in the first half, had multiple good chances. Neymar missed a good chance. Now, to be, to be fair to City, Phil Foden did miss a good chance as well. But that was against the run of play. PSG were dominant in that first half. City could not live with Verratti, with Paredes, and with Idrissagana Gay. Angel Di Maria was having an absolute field day on the right wing up against Joe Canseo, who turned in a stinker. They looked very, very comfortable first half. Second half, PSG started the better team. I think they were the better team up until the hour mark. And then it sort of clicked for City. Kevin De Bruyne equalised a complete fluke of a goal. A clipped cross into the box that missed everybody, but because of the angle of it, the keeper couldn't commit to trying to save it until late in case it took a flick off somebody. Bounces into the net. De Bruyne didn't even try and pretend he meant it. Fluke goal. Seven minutes later, Riyad Mahrez. Now, it is a good free kick, but the PSG wall. I'm sorry. When the ball goes through the wall, there's absolutely no excuse for the defence. Very, very poor from PSG. And from there, City were comfortable. Uh, Idrissa Gay was sent off on 77. And City didn't have too many worries after that. But the hyperbole last night from Gary Lineker, this morning from Dan Walker, people like that, amazing. Henry Winter 
wants uh, Ruben Diaz to be named Footballer of the Year because he stared down Erling Haaland, Kylian Mbappe and Harry Kane within a fortnight. Well, two of those games don't count towards Footballer of the Year because Footballer of the Year is a domestic award. So games in the Champions League have no bearing on that. And secondly, that was a half-fit, at best, half-fit Harry Kane in the cup final. But when they played and Harry Kane was fully fit early in the season, Harry Kane made him look quite poor. Now, Diaz is a very good defender. He's having a very good season. But these attempts to elevate him into the upper echelon of world-class defenders, far too early for that. Far, far too early for that. Haaland had moments against him. If it wasn't for Ederson, he would have scored. Mbappe had a couple of moments last night. He got beaten badly on the goal. Let's pump the brakes a little bit on the Ruben Diaz hype. Um, but a great result for City. Performance side, a great result for City. I think that's what's gotten lost in the hyperbole. The other factor in the performance side is a big part of going away in Europe is that hostile atmosphere. There's no fans at these games. There's no fans at these games. So it negates any real threat. There is no real home advantage at the moment. There's no real away days at the moment because there's no fans. You're just playing in a different empty stadium. And PSG have lost at home five times in the league this year. They lost to Marseille, they lost to Lyon, they lost to Monaco, they lost to Nantes, and they lost to Lille. The reason they may well lose the French title this season is because their home form has been terrible. They also lost at home to Manchester United and Bayern Munich. So this is their eighth home defeat of the season. It's, it's not a great performance. It's a great result, but it's not a great performance. Um, City will be confident now going into the second leg, but PSG remain dangerous with Mbappe, with Neymar, with Di Maria playing the way he is. Still a big threat for City. It'll be interesting to see now, because City have the Premier League wrapped up, but PSG are still chasing Lille. PSG are one point off the top in France. Monaco are one point behind them, so they're not even guaranteed second. Monaco have have Lyon this weekend, so that one will be tough. Um, PSG have uh, have Lens. That'll be a tough game because they're a good team as well. So they're fifth. Um, it's a good chance for Lille to maybe open up a bit of a gap because you'd guess PSG will have to rest some players with the focus being on beating City in the second leg. So I would guess that Mbappe and Neymar probably don't play which may well cost PSG the title. But I think the Champions League is far more important to them than another French League title. They've sacked managers who've won French League titles because they haven't done it in Europe. City can afford to rest everybody they want this weekend. No problem. They're going to win the league regardless. Um, Tonight we have Europa League action. We have Manchester United at home to Roma. And we have Villarreal away to Arsenal. Why both of these games are on at the same time, I have no idea. That is some dreadful mismanagement of their schedule by UEFA. One of these games should have been on at 6 and the other one at 8. 
give them both the opportunity to get the biggest audience possible. United and Arsenal are two of the three biggest clubs in England. I would say two of the ten biggest clubs in Europe. Historically speaking, obviously not at the moment with the way Arsenal have been, but historically speaking, fan base-wise, Arsenal are an enormous club. Roma are a massive club. Villarreal, less so, but they do have a very passionate fan base. Uh, United will be strong favourites in their tie. They're obviously second in the Premier League on a good run of form domestically. They got into the Europa League having finished third in a Champions League group with PSG and RB Leipzig. They were dropped in. They beat Real Sociedad 4-0 in the away leg. Oh, well, it was a neutral a neutral leg, to be fair. And then they drew 0-0 at home. They went through 2-1 on aggregate against AC Milan. And then they beat Granada 2-0 in both legs in the quarterfinals. There's so many games in the Europa League. So they will be strong favourites, I think. Um, but Roma are not to be taken lightly. They topped a group with young boys, CFR Cluj and CSKA Sofia, winning five, sorry, winning four, drawing one and losing one. Um, CSKA Sofia, who finished bottom of the group, actually got a draw and a, a victory over Roma. Then they, in the knockout phases, they knocked out Braga, uh, beat them 5-1 on aggregate. Really impressive win over Shakhtar, again 5-1 on aggregate. And then beat Ajax last time out, 3-2 on aggregate. A little bit fortunate at times in that one. But over the course of the two legs, did feel they were the better team. This is a big test of them. Obviously, Chris Smalling playing against his old club is an interesting one. But United are going to have to be careful of certain players here. Jordan Veritao is in great form. Lorenzo Pellegrini is a fantastic player. Henrik Mkhitaryan, also obviously former Manchester United, he's having a very good season. Eden Dzeko's back in, in form and, you know, in the good grace of the manager. So hopefully he gets the start. And uh, Pedro of Chelsea and Barcelona fame, who scored against United plenty in the past. Uh, it's a big test for United. It won't be easy, but they should still overcome. They should still have the better team. They should still have the advantage. Um, but it has been the semi-final stage of, of comp club, cup competitions that has tripped Oli up in the past. As for Arsenal, Villarreal are... Very, very good in Europe. In their group, they overcame Maccabi Tel Aviv, Sivaspor and Quarabag from um, Azerbaijan. Topped the group, five wins and a draw. The only drop points were away to Maccabi Tel Aviv. Knocked out Red Bull Salzburg, 4-1 on aggregate in the round of 32. Knocked out Dynamo Kiev, 4-0 on aggregate in the round of 16. Knocked out Tottenham's Conquerors, Dinamo Zagreb 3-1 and come into this game. I think I think Villarreal are the favourites for this. They've got a lot of good players. People will know a lot of them. Geronimo Rulli, former Manchester City goalkeeper, never really played for them, I don't think. I don't think he played at all, but they owned him for a while. Um, Pau Torres, heavily linked with Manchester United. Raul Albiol, been around forever. Uh, Funes Mori, used to play for Everton. Juan Voigt, uh, of Tottenham, he's there on loan. Uh, people will know Chuck Wazy. People will know Cockyeen. Arsenal will know Cockyeen very well. Uh, Etienne Capoue, former Tottenham. Danny Pareo, people will, will know him. He's been around a long time. But the two danger men up front, 
Gerard Moreno, who's one of the most underappreciated strikers in Europe, very, very good player, 26 goals in all competitions this year, and Paco Alcalcer. Uh, people will know him from when he was at Dortmund. Carlos Baca is there. They've got a very, very talented squad. It is a club that is, you know, it's one of the smaller clubs in Spain, but they're very well run, very well organized. They're also managed by Unai Emery. Now, Unai Emery, obviously, former Arsenal manager, but more importantly for him, three-time winner of this tournament with Sevilla, runner-up with Arsenal. He is, in this competition, he is maybe the best manager ever in Europa League competition. This is the competition he just knows how to win. And that, for me, will make them favourites. I think he gives them the edge. They have a better team than Arsenal as well. It should be pointed out. They do have a better team than Arsenal. They're currently sixth in La Liga. I would imagine they'll finish fifth when push comes to shove. Um, They are one point behind Real Betis. Sorry, the seventh. They're one point behind Betis, four points behind Sociedad. I think they'll get sixth. I think they'll jump uh, Real Betis over the last five games of the season. But, I mean, above Sociedad, then you've got Sevilla, Atletico, Real and Barca. So you've got kind of the bigger four. And this is the best of the rest. I think they're right there with Sociedad as the best of the rest in Spain. Whereas Arsenal, currently sitting in mid-table in the Premier League, 10th out of the FA Cup, out of the uh, League Cup. This is their only opportunity at Silverware. This is their only opportunity at European football next year. Other than that, they're done. They have nothing to play for other than this. So they need this. Arsenal massively need this. They're six points behind Everton in eighth. And Everton have a game in hand against Aston Villa. If Aston Villa win that game, they will jump Arsenal and Arsenal will be 11th. How embarrassing for Arsenal if they finish in the bottom half of the league. Um, Two good games tonight. Unfortunately, you have to pick between them. I think I would lean Arsenal via Real, though I do think United-Roma will be a good game as well. We're going to take an early break. When we come back, we'll jump into the questions and get through them. Right, welcome back. Uh, we have uh, a lot of questions today, but one that I forgot, I didn't forget it, I said I'd do it this week but I had forgotten that I was going to do it this week from Isaac Gilding last week was uh, to name the my best 11 of players that didn't fulfill their potential. So I, I'm doing this off the top of my head. I'm going to run through this as quickly as possible. I would go Chris Kirkland as a goalkeeper. I think he had all the tools to become the next great England goalkeeper when he broke through a Coventry move to Liverpool at the same time as Dudek, and the plan was that Dudek would be number one for the first couple of years, and then Kirkland would take over. He was only 20 at the time, and obviously goalkeepers tend to develop that little bit slower, that little bit later. Back problems plagued his career, absolutely spoiled his career. When he was fit, he was excellent, but in five years at Liverpool, and he played 25 league games, um, which isn't great. 45 games in all competitions. Did go on and do very, very well for Wigan. Had 
three or four great years there. Uh, did really well for Sheffield Wednesday late in his career. But again, just had a bunch of seasons where injuries absolutely spoiled uh, spoiled his career. Only the one England cap. Such a shame. Wonderful talent. Just never quite quite happened for him because of the injuries. Um, I'd go Ledley King for certain. Ledley King, to me, the most talented of that era of English centre-back. With Rio, with Terry. Rio had more ability on the ball, but Ledley had far more ability defensively. Uh, Carragher. Ledley, for me, far and away the most talented of that group defensively. And the other one, Jonathan Woodgate, I would also put him in this group. Jonathan Woodgate, again, an amazing talent, spoiled by injury. I think if he doesn't get hurt, he has the career John Terry had. There's a reason Real Madrid were so adamant that they wanted him to come and partner Walter Samuel. That pairing, I think, given time without injuries, would have become a great pairing for Real. And I think him and King would have become the England pairing. And I'm going to throw Phil Jones in there. I've talked a lot on this podcast about the lack, like England's lack of a great spine, the lack of the great English midfielder, the lack of the great English centre-back. King and Woodgate obviously came through at the time where England had great centre-backs anyway. Uh, Saul Campbell, people like that. But Phil Jones was meant to be the next generation after them. And due to injuries, mismanagement at Manchester United had been asked to play right back and in midfield. He didn't develop into the type of centre-back he should have been. I think he's always been better at defending small spaces rather than big open spaces. But Phil Jones would be would be in this as well. So I'll go with a back three then of Jones, Woodgate, and Ledley King. Um, Gaza, for me, has to be in it. I, I just think if Gaza hadn't torn his ACL and all the other ligaments in his knee in that FA Cup final, and if he hadn't been so mental, I think Gaza would have been one of the world's great midfield players. Just an incredibly gifted footballer. Next to him in centre midfield, I'm going to put Jack Wilshere. When I saw Jack Wilshere at 18 dominate Barcelona for Arsenal, I genuinely thought we were watching the emergence of a superstar. Jack Wilshere has never played that well again. He's had flashes, he's had spells, but he's never consistently played that well. And he was 18 at the time. He is now, what age is Jack Wilshere? Jack Wilshere is 29 years of age. Um... Currently playing for Bournemouth. He's doing quite well for Bournemouth by all accounts, but just didn't become the player he should have been. Um, in wide areas, I'll go Sebastian Deisler. Was meant to be the next great thing for Germany. Came through at Borussia Mönchengladbach. Moved to Hertha Berlin. Was sensational for them. Moved to Bayern Munich. In 2002, he was only 22 years of age, and the pressure just broke him. Um, multiple cruciate ligament injuries, the pressure of trying to return to fitness, developed anxiety, developed uh, depression, and could just not play anymore. Retired at the age of 27, a massive loss to German football. He would have been, he was their star. He was their Beckham. And unfortunately, it just didn't work because of injuries. Um, I'm going to go Danielson. 
De Nielsen to me is one of the most gifted wingers I've ever seen. And if you remember, Real Betis paid a world record fee from £21.5 million back in 98. And it just, it, it never happened for him. He never fully became the player he had the talent to be. Um, they got relegated. Nobody would buy him. He just, he drifted for most of his career. Did well on a little spell at Bordeaux. Um, I think he did well when he went back to Brazil. I can't remember for who. But Danielson to me, was just so gifted, and it, it just never happened for him. Great, great talent, but on-field production, not quite there. In the same vein, Rubinho. So in my front three, I'll go Rubinho. Obviously had a good career, but not the career he was meant to have. I mean, this guy was meant to be what Neymar became. This guy was more hyped than Neymar when they were young. Um, he was meant to be the next Pele. And look, he played for you know, Real Madrid, Man City, Milan, bounced around a lot. But he just, he never became the same player, the, the player he should have been. And um, it's a shame because he had all the ability in the world. Just it never worked for him. Another Brazilian up front with him, I'd have to put Adriano uh, as an all-round number nine. I mean, when people look at Erling Haaland and try and project out what he what he will be, the best version of him is the best version of Adriano. Just an absolute force of nature, huge, unstoppable pace, power, incredible shooting ability. But Adriano sort of ate himself out of the game. Uh, too much of a love of the party lifestyle, and in truth, was was pretty much a, done as a top level player at twenty six, twenty seven, and he should have been at that point becoming the best striker in the world, but unfortunately for him, it just didn't happen. And then finally, I think you have to put Mario Balotelli, another one that just had absolutely everything. Absolutely everything you'd want in a number nine. Um, but attitude, work ethic, lunacy, it, it all just spoiled it. Um, he's playing for Monza now in Serie B. He's only, I think he's 30, might be 31 by now, but he should be playing for a top, top club based on his talent. But since leaving Milan the first time, joining Liverpool, Disaster. Back to Milan on loan. Disaster. Went to Nice. Was brilliant for them. Went to Marseille. Did okay, but it was only a short-term deal. Back to Italy, to Brescia. It was a mess. Um, seemed to fall out with a bunch of people. And, um, yeah, now playing for Monza. Not even, not even in Serie A. So, you know, Mario, to me, would have to be in that, that group. So that would be my 11. Kirkland... Jones, Woodgate, King, Deisler, Gascoigne, Wilshire, Danielson, Balotelli, Adriano, Rubinho. That would be my 11. Um, there's a couple of others you could put in. Uh, Antonio Cassano, Ravel Morrison. I, I think Robbie Fowler, though I do think he showed more of his potential than any of these these that I've put in. I think he got closer to his, his limit. Um 
I mean, you could put in Michael Owen. I think that would be, you know, he was he, he was incredible for years, but he was retired basically at 25. You know, his career was done at, at 25, 26. So um, there's a lot of players you could put in. That's just the 11 I'd, I'd go with. Um, right, we'll jump into some of these questions. Uh, let's say AC Milan squads circa 1988 to 94 and Barca squads 9 to thirteen were around today and met in this season's Champions League final. Pick your match day eleven and benches. How does the game play out and who wins? Right. Well, the Milan team, um, Rossi in goal. You'd have Tosotti. You'd have Tosotti, Costa Curta, Baresi, Maldini. Midfield is where it gets interesting. I think you have to pick Rijkaard, but can you? You can't leave Desai out. So maybe you put Desai at centre back. That's disrespectful to Costa Curta. Do you know what we'll do? Because Capello's going to be the manager. Because sorry, Arrigo Saki fans, it's Capello for me. Um, we're going to go Rijkaard box to box, and Desai is more of a sitting player. Um. Boban, Donadoni, Van Basten, and Hullet up front. Boban on one wing, Savicevic on the other, Donadoni, uh, oh, sorry, um, Van Basten and Hullet up front. For Barca, it's Victor Valdez, Danny Alves, um, Eric Abidal, Puyol, and PK. Xavi Iniesta Busquets. I, I I always like the the Messi with Messi is the false nine with David Villa and Pedro either side, but you you can't really leave out Henri. It's tough to leave out Etu. Hmm. We'll go with Etu and, and Henri. We'll we'll go with those to either side of Messi. Etu played wide for, for Mourinho at, at Inter and, and Henri always kind of drifted to the left wing. In terms of how it would play out, Barca would dominate the ball, but I think they would have a very hard time breaking down that inter, that AC Milan team. You have an incredible athletic advantage in that Milan team, a size advantage. I kind of feel like that would be the difference between the teams is that Milan could just bully them. And the thing is, they're not just bullies, but they're great ball players as well. But I just think they're physically so gifted. I mean, Ruud Hullet might be the greatest athlete the game has ever had. Rijkaard will be right up in that mix. Desai was a freak athlete. Van Basten, I think, is one of the, he's one of the top two or three best number nines ever. He's certainly in the top two that I've seen. People older than that can can debate whatever. Uh, Savicevic and Boban give you your playmaking, your creativity. Yeah, I think I'd go Milan to win a very, very tight game. You've got the best defense of all time. To the best, one of the best holding midfielders of all time, one of the best defensive players of all time, sitting in midfield, 
in Rijkaard and Desai, I just think they would make it so hard for anyone to break them down. And I don't think, like, PK is not dealing with Van Basten. And if, if it's Puyol that deals with Van Basten, then Hullet is going to absolutely run riot in that game. Um, I think I think Milan would beat them. If I'm honest, I think the Barca team is one of the best for ever for sure. But I do think that Milan team beats them. I really do think that Milan team beats them. Um, and I think that era of Capello is as good a manager as we've ever seen. And I think, you know, you, you could have Saki as manager with Capello as the assistant manager. And then you get the best of both worlds. You get the the Saki press, which would be massively beneficial. But you get Capello's defensive now and solidity. So that versus Pep. I think what happens is Pep overthinks it, tries to do something real clever and gets himself in some trouble. But if there's if there's one centre back ever who could have dealt with Messi, I think it is Barese. I think he had the speed, agility, and turning quickness to deal with Messi. Now he wouldn't have stopped him, but he would have slowed him down sufficiently. Then you've got the perfect defensive right back into Sotti, who can deal with Henri. If Henri comes in field, he's got Costa Curta, one of the best man-marking centre-backs of all time. And then you've still got the best defender ever, in my view, in Paolo Maldini. So I think they could stop Barca. I think they could overrun them in midfield. And I don't think Barca could stop them in attack. So I would go with Milan to win a tight game 2-1. Um, Anthony Zenk. Different types of forwards here, but you're a manager and you get to choose two of these players in your 11, in their primes. Pick them and tell me why. Chemistry, styles, talent, personality, all matters in this. Right, so I've got to pick a pairing. So he's listed Henri, Totti, Zlatan, Lewandowski, Torres, Burkamp, Del Piero, Shevchenko and Rivaldo. I mean, Burkamp and Henri, we know that works. And we know that is incredible as a pairing. But I'm really drawn to the idea of Totti and Lewandowski as a pair. Totti playing just off, but remember, late in his career, Totti played as a false nine. Lewandowski, when he was at Dortmund initially, played as a ten. So what you get with those is you get the ability to interchange. They can play as a two, they can play as a one and one, they can switch. Both capable of dropping wide. I think I would go with Totti and Lewandowski. I think Lewandowski is a pure finisher, but a great all-round player. Totti, great finisher, inventive, hard-working, leadership. I would go Totti and Lewandowski just over the Henri Burkamp combination. Um, Rivaldo and Torres would have been fun though Rivaldo and Torres would have been fun but that would be my pairing uh, Francesco Totti and um, Robert Lewandowski that's what I would go with for, for, for that one um, Adam Petrucian which assistant is in charge of subs and should be fired for Liverpool allowing a 95th minute equaliser 
without using their third against Newcastle. I'm afraid that is all on the shoulders of one Jurgen Klopp, sir. Um, his second half management of the game was disastrous. Um, Mr. Feeling all right. Just all right. Not good. Just all right. Uh, if it's likely uh, Naby Keita is leaving and rumours of our are true, how would you compare the two? Do you see them as fairly different or close to the same in terms of the roles? I think Auer is better and more advanced. I think Naby's at his best when he can drop deep, pick the ball up and carry it. I think Auer is better when he receives the ball a little bit higher up on the half turn and can then move into the into the half space and start to open up the channels. If Auer arrives, I think it's a sign that Liverpool are changing shape. Either to a box midfield where he plays in that left attacking midfield role and drops into a left side midfield role when they don't have the ball, or he plays as a number 10. I don't love him as a 10. I prefer him slightly withdrawn in a wider role. He can play as an 8, but I don't think it would be the best use of him. I think Liverpool would be better off playing Fabinho and Thiago as a 2. Getting him in to play from the left in that kind of withdrawn role, Curtis Jones would make a very good backup for him. And then if if it's true that if Sadio Mane is leaving, I think you go all in on Rafinha, Play him off the off the right in a similar type of role, more of a dribbler. Ours more of a passer, but I think those two would work brilliantly. And then you've got Harvey Elliott as your backup and your long term successor to Elliott. I think that works. Or to Rafinha, I think that works really well. You still got Henderson in midfield. You bring in one more to replace Ginny Wijnaldum. If it's Eves Basima, it's Eves Basima. If it's Sanderberger, I think he might work quite quite well. Um, I think that's. That's as good a group as Liverpool can hope to have next season. Um, MTUSA08. Who would you say is the closest modern player to these Liverpool legends? Rush, Barnes, Dogleash, Keegan and Souness. Oh. That is very, very good. Leroy Sané is the closest thing to John Barnes, in my view. He's a, he's a slightly different type of player, but when he plays left wing, there's just something about the way he carries himself, his ability to shift side to side, use his body to fool defenders, skip by people, and just his crossing ability is phenomenal. I think Leroy Sané for Barnes... Dogleash is a tough one. There's not many players that play that kind of nine and a half kind of role anymore. Not in the way he played it anyway. I mean, I mentioned him earlier on. Antonio Casano was very much in that kind of mold. Like it just does not anyone that jumps out to me. Daniel Mallon is who I'd say. Quicker than Kenny, but the same type of probably best off a nine, but could play as the nine, can play in the channels, strong uh, squat build, great technical ability. I'd go Daniel Mallon. Not the same level, but the same sort of role. Um, Calvin Phillips reminds me of Souness. Nowhere near the player, but the same kind of attributes. Bowl winner, leader, 
great passer, controls the middle of the park. I think Cal- Calvin Phillips is the is the closest thing to Sunes. Keegan was slightly different to Kenny, played more off the shoulder. Don't know that we have a Keegan. Don't know that we have a Keegan. And Rush is a very hard one because he was so unique in, like, didn't have the greatest technical ability, but would just make runs endlessly in behind. Hmm. Let me come back to that. Let me let me think of, on those two, on Keegan and, and Rush, and come back to them. Um, to incentivize teams to finish better than fourth, how would you feel about a playoff to get the last Champions League spot with four, five, six, and seven, and the three losers going to the Europa League? So I would actually, I would prefer to see only three teams go into the Champions League. But if you are going to keep the fourth spot, what I would say is have it fourth, fifth, and sixth. And whoever wins the FA Cup. And if the FA Cup winner is already in or is one of these teams, then you bring in number seven. But I do like that idea. I do like that idea. If you had to pick an all-star team for Europe's top five leagues, Andrea Bellotti is who I'd go with for Rush. I know that's random, but just that, that willingness to endlessly make the same run that dynamic work rate, defensive leader from the front. More powerful than Rush. Scores, you know, from distance a little bit more often. But I do think, not again, not as good as Rush. I mean, Rush's goal record is insane. But Andrea Bellotti is who I'd go with for Rush. Um, yeah, Cameron v- uh, Vela. If you had to pick an all-star team for Europe's top five leagues, who would you pick and what formation would they play? Hmm. Right. For League for League 1, I would go Rajkovic in goal from Reims. Zeki Selic at right back from Lille. Marquinhos and Sven Botman as my centre-backs. And I'll move Kimbembe to left-back. Flat four. Um, Verratti at the base of a diamond. Renato Sanchez and Kakare as the kind of the engine. I'll go Neymar as the 10. Mbappe up front next to. Huh. Memphis. Has to be Memphis. Yeah, that'll be my French team. Um, Syria are... Donnarumma is the, the no-brain picking goal. Um, 
delict. Yeah, I'm not massively keen on delict and Christian Romero would definitely be my centre backs. Uh, and Bastoni, I'll go delict. No, home. Oh. Huh. I'll go Scrinier, delict and Romero. Romero will have to play on the left. Scrinier, delict and Romero as my um back three. I'll have. Oh, the guy at Inter Milan, his name is just bouncing off my head now. Um, Ashraf Hakimi, he'll be my right wing back. He, uh, Theo Hernandez will be my left wing back. Barella. Barella. Barella will be one of my midfielders. Lorenzo Pellegrini will be another. And Frank Kessie will be my third. And then up front, it's Lukaku and Latura Martinez. 3-4-3. Um, 3-5-2. That would be my, um, my Serie A. For Germany, Nauer is still the best goalkeeper. Kimmich at right back. Alaba at left back. I'm going Kanate at centre back. I think he's one of the best in the league. Um, next to him, he's had a tough time in the last couple of years, but I still think Nicholas. I know you know Lucas Hernandez. Kanate and Lucas Hernandez at centre back. Uh, in midfield. Just for the haters, Emre Chan, uh, Leon Goretzka next to him, and Jude Bellingham. No, not Jude Bellingham. Jude Bellingham's too early. We'll go with Nabry. We'll go with a midfield two of, of Chan and Goretzka. Uh, Gnabry one wing, Sancho the other, Lewandowski and Haaland up front. And um, what was the la-, oh, la Liga then is the fifth. So Oblak in goal. I think Emerson of Real Betis at right back. Ferland Mendy at left back. Um, Jose Jimenez and Varane at centre back. Saul. Casemiro and Cruz as a midfield three. And then up front, you've got to have Messi, obviously. I'm still putting Suarez in. Is that no? Do you know what we'll go? We'll go Messi, Benzema, and Joe Felix as my front three. So four, three, three. Yeah, that those would be those would be mine. Um, gum gum pistol. If it's United versus versus Arsenal in the Europa League and City versus Chelsea in the Champions League. Can you say it's a true reflection on how strong English football is or how have English teams been lucky? No, I, I think it is a fair reflection on how strong English football is, to be fair. Like, you look at the other leagues, Germany's a, a one-team league. 
Serie A has been a one-team league for years. Now, finally, Inter are overtaking them. A lot of that is that Juve have fallen off. Um, La Liga was a two-team league, has become a three-team league, and hopefully Sevilla can maintain this and make it a four-team league. France has been a one-team league for years. Now it looks like we're seeing a bit more. But again, that's PSG have fallen off. But England is legitimately... There is a big six. Now, there's always one or two that don't do well. But you're still left with four. There's always four really good ones. And then you factor in Leicester and how good they've been and how much they're pushing to kind of expand the big six to the big seven. I do think English football is in a, is, is in a strong position. Um, they, there's been some luck involved. There always is. But I do think it is a reflection that right now English football in the top division is stronger than their than their counterparts. The title race in France is great. The title race in Spain is great. But I do think there's more good English teams right now than there is for many of the leagues. Um, do you think Anfield Index will ever do a Pundit Review magazine like Sunday Supplement? It's only instead of Lick Harsing, there there's honest reviews of the week's work both good and bad. Top pundits from the papers and TV shows put them in a league rate. rate oh, put them in a league rate. They work at a 10 and see who comes out on top. Oh, I like this. Oh, I like the idea of this. I, I, I will pitch this to Gags and Eddie to do something like this. Um, who do you think are the top five pundits? Um, God, I don't know. I really like Sunes and I really like Roy Keane because I think they're honest. Um, since Mourinho's out of work, I'll pit, pick him as well. Alex Scott, I think, was a good pundit. Now she's presenting now. She's kind of moved into the presenting spy side. I think she's really good. Again, I think she's honest. I don't think she panders. A fifth one. He says some mad things at times, but I think Martin Keown's actually quite good. I think when he's asked to break down defensive lapses, I think he's quite good. When he tries to talk about attackers, it's just time to zone out. Um, and Loris Karius has one year left. We won't get anything for him, and we'll probably loan him to have to pay his wages. Would it make sense just keep him as a number two? I think it would. I think it would make more sense to have Loris Karius in-house playing and earning his wage than be paying him to sit on the bench somewhere else. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would keep Karius. Um, with Liverpool probably been in the Europa League next season, do you think Klopp will have a Europa League team and a Premier League team? Um, no, because I, I, he won't have a big enough squad to do it. He, he'll probably rotate heavily between the two, but I, I don't think he'll be able to run two separate teams. Uh, nor do I think he should, because I, I want him to try and win everything he's in. I'm sick of Liverpool just throwing away two two trophies at the start of the year, and it would be worse to do it with three. Now, again, you would put caveats in that. I don't think Salah should be playing in the Europa League. I don't think Van Dijk should be playing in the Europa League. I'd be leaving Alisson at home, and probably Fabinho, um, or, Fabinho or Thiago. But the rest should play. And I think he has to go strong with it. Um... That was from Zane, uh, ZLFC1892. 
from Trev Downey in what has been a campaign of both engaging uh, visceral stories and craven media manufactured narratives. What are your favorite story stories or media fishing trips of the season so far? Well, for me, it's all about Keva on the uh, on the Sky platform, just randomly making stuff up as he goes along, uh, making up quotes to to stoke the embers of you know a fire that's gone out over the Super League. Um, because Sky want you to know that the good guys won. Uh, Gary Neville said the sorry Gary Lineker, not not the lesser Gary, the the upper Gary said that they said said the quiet part out loud last night on Twitter when he said that it was the the status quo we were all fighting for. That's the status quo where people pay through the nose, and Gary and his other cohorts stay very well paid for being fairly average at their jobs. Um, um, from Adam Hanlon at Nabby underscore lad underscore. Uh, don't know if there's any truth in the Watkins rumors, but do you think he'd be good coming in off the left-hand side for us like Mane? No, I don't think he has the technical ability. I think if you're going to buy him, either play him on the right and kind of simplify his game, or you play him through the middle. I don't think there's any truth in it. I don't think he's the caliber of number nine Liverpool want. He is a good player and he does offer quite a lot. Especially off the ball, he's very, very good. But I, I, I wouldn't want him coming in off the left. If Liverpool do buy him either through the middle, maybe in a pair in a pairing with Mo, or off the right with Mo going central. Um, your opinion on Newhouse as a potential signing and how it fits? I really like him. I, he's a really good player. Obviously, with with Gladback, very good passer of the ball, super intelligent, good movement. Can play as an 8 or as a 10. Could sit in a double pivot. He's not an ideal fit. I, I don't think. But he is a very good player. I wouldn't be against that one. And um, who's your favourite team from uh, Ligue 1, Serie A, La Liga and the Bundesliga? I was actually just talking to Carl Matchett about this. I would say from, from Serie A... I, to be fair, the favourite team to watch is Atalanta, but I always do keep an eye out for Napoli. Um, the Bundesliga, it's it's been Dortmund since the 90s because of Matthias Sammer, but my Bundesliga team that I do support is Werder Bremen because of Dieter Els. Um, But I always like watching Dortmund more because, I mean, they're good and Bremen are largely dreadful. But um, La Liga, I don't really have one. I would say... Probably just Bilbao, just because of, you know, the Bilbao-ness of it all. And um, in France, again, I don't really have one. I keep an eye on a couple of teams. But Marseille are sort of the, the team I do kind of have a bit of an affinity for. Um, so that would, be, that would be that. Is there a disconnect between Klopp and the recruitment staff? He doesn't seem to trust many of their recent signings. Uh, Naby, Costas, Minamino, etc. Naby was his. Naby was 100% Jurgen Klopp signing. Um, I don't think there's any disconnect, to be totally honest with you. And I think, you know, Costas, it's a weird situation where because Virgil got hurt and because it was a makeshift centre-back pairing, he also had the ankle injury in COVID. I just don't think he's been able to get a run. You're not going to stick... A brand new left back in next to a Jordan Henderson at centre back or a Reese Williams. 
at centre-back. So I just think Costas has been unfortunate with timing. Um, Minamino just... Minamino was an opportunistic signing. We got him for a song, 7.2 million. We will sell him for double that, regardless of how he does. I I think that might have just been an opportunistic one. I don't think there's a disconnect. Uh, That one from WWFLFC. Um, Vinyl Maniac 1964. Thoughts on Yasin Adli. His stats look good, but I haven't seen him play. Similarly, Vlahovic, Malin and Doku. Why might they be options for Liverpool? So to go in reverse order, Jeremy Doku is definitely someone Liverpool have looked at for quite a long time um, when he was at Anderlecht. He is kind of seen as a Mane-type replacement in the long term. They probably should have bought him last summer if they'd had the opportunity, but he, he went on to Ren. He's doing quite well there. Daniel Mallon, former Arsenal Academy graduate, really talented Probably, I think, better in a two than as the central focal point in a three. But he does have a lot of good attributes that I think would work with Mo and another either side of him. But I do really want us to go to Mo through the middle, either in 4-2-3-1 or a 4-4-2. Malin could play with him in a two, though it is quite small. Malin's about 5-9, Mo's about the same. And they're both really strong. They've got a lot of similar attributes in terms of holding the ball up and holding defenders off. Malin's very talented. Vlahovic is a very interesting one. Um, Big, strong, formidable number nine. Good hold-up play. Really good finisher. Has seen a massive uptick this season. Doesn't have Haaland's power or, or physical pace, but has the same type of body, same kind of you know, left-footed finisher, same type of belief in himself. If you can't get Haaland this summer, Vlahovic is a, is a decent, he's a good, he's a good alternative. He's a good player who I think will be very good. He wouldn't be top of my list, uh, Yosef and Naziri would be, but I think Vlahovic at Liverpool got him would be a great signing. And Yasin Adli is a player that's very talented, but has disappointed since going to Bordeaux, in my view. Now, he came through at PSG. He was super highly rated. He was, you know, the next Zidane because he was he had that kind of North African descent. He hasn't become that type of player, but he is a good player. This season's been a little bit up and down, but when he plays at his best level, he is very, very good, and he is the type that can take over a game. He's Kind of an old-school playmaker type. Just the one goal this season um, in 31 league games, but five assists, so far more a creator than a goal scorer. Um, he'd be an, he, he wouldn't start for Liverpool. He'd be a good squad addition, but with already having Curtis Jones, I'm not sure it would be a deal that would make a ton of sense. Um, Callum Perry asked, how would you reorganize the, fo- the current football tournaments? Which ones would you scrap? bring back or alter like an 18-team Premier League. So the Premier League, I would. I would drop it to 18 teams. The EFL Cup, any team who's in European competition would be exempt from it. The FA Cup, I would keep exactly the same. The Community Shield or Charity Shield, I would make it into more of an all-star game. So rather than having the league winners against the cup winners, I would have the best of the North versus the best of the South, voted on by fans throughout the summer. 
I think that would be a lot more fun and more of a spectacle. And I also think you could take it away from Wembley and it could be it could be a game that you play in different places to bring more eyes in the Premier League. And I don't think people will complain too much about that, using it as a marketing tool, because it will also drive money towards the charitable organisations that benefit from it. The Champions League, um, I, I don't mind the uh, addition of um, extra clubs and it going to 36. I don't like the idea of it all being in one league. Uh, I spoke about this with Carol Matchett yesterday. What I would do is have four leagues of, of nine. Everybody plays each other once. So you play four home, four away. It's eight games. You go through your quarterfinal. So then you have, so you have a round of 16, because four, four teams from each group would go through to the round of 16. In that round of 16, it's a traditional home and away uh, tournament, or home and away uh, setup. Then you've got eight teams left. Now, what I would do, and this is a little bit controversial, is rather than have it be quarterfinal, semifinal, final, I would have it be you bring all eight clubs to one place or have them at home if you want, but all eight clubs to one place and you have two groups of four. Everybody plays each other once in their group and the two teams that finish top of their groups, they go through and play the final. That would be that would be my way of doing that. The UEFA Cup... Um, I would, or the Europa League rather, I would scrap, bring back the old UEFA Cup and just have it be open draw, two-legged the whole way through in two-legged final. I would bring back the Cup Winners' Cup in place of the Europa Conference League because I think it's a nonsense. I would have the FA Cup winners and League Cup winners from each country. The countries that don't have two, fine, just put forward one. I would make it the number two competition. So if you win the FA Cup and finish, say, fifth in the Premier League, you go into the Cup Winners' Cup, not the not the UEFA Cup. And um, I would seed that. So based on the coefficient, I would just seed the draw. So the number one seeded team, the, the, the Cup winner from the number one seeded country would play the Cup winner from the bottom seeded country. And it would be a seeded bracket the whole way through. So you would know your path to the final. Um, the European Super Cup... Again, I would scrap. I, I just don't like it. I just don't think it, it serves a purpose. And the Club World Cup, I, I don't mind the current format. I, I really don't. Um, you've got Europe, South America, Asia, Africa, Oceania, and North America. What I would do in that regard is I would give Europe and South America a bye into the semi final, have, say, Oceania play. Asia, Africa play North America. The winners of those, they make up the other semi-finalists, and then you've got semi-finals and final. That's basically what I would do. Um, Matthew Book, uh, Matty B743, is the current Man City team better than the 2010-2012 team? I really like the team before Aguero when Tevez was the main man. Um, I, I would say it is slightly better. I think it's it's deeper. I think they've got more squad depth. I think they've got more quality in other places. That 10-11 team was good, but there was some average players in it that were a level below what we see with City now, where, you know, good goalkeeper, I think Ederson's a better all-rounder than Joe Hart. Um, Zabaleta was better than Kyle Walker, but I think Canseo's better than, was Nick Gale Clichy was the left, was Gale Clichy was the left back? Um, 
I think they've got better depth at centre-back, but none are as good as company was individually. In midfield, I think they're substantially better um, because that would have been before Fernandinho as well. That would have been like the Gareth Barry, Nigel de Jong midfield, if I'm not mistaken, that kind of that kind of group. Um, there's no David Silva, but obviously they do have Gundogan, they have De Bruyne, they have Bernardo Silva, they have Phil Foden. I think Rodri's very, very good. I think Fernandinho's been great. He's obviously dipped. And I just think they've got more options up front, if not that kind of excellent number nine, like a Tevez and, or an Aguero. Um, I, I still think their wide options are are better. Um, I, I would say this team is better than than that team. Um, Isaac Gilding, uh, what was Gerard's best season in your opinion? I would say the the obvious go to is is oh nine, sorry, is oh eight oh nine. But I actually think the year he played right wing under Rafa, that would have been oh five oh six. He scored twenty three goals in all competitions. I think over all competitions, that was his best season. Obviously, the FA Cup final win, the Gerrard final was that year as well. I would say that was his best overall year. Though from a Premier League standpoint, you'd probably argue 08-09 with the 16 goals uh, does trump it. But I, I did think he was a better player um, in in 5 6 because he hadn't had as many injuries at that point. Um, Scott Chandler asks, what's the one thing from the NFL, such as coaches' challenges, salary cap, player draft, etc., that you would like to implement in European football? Um, see, the problem with a salary cap is that in America, you've got the salary cap, and then you've got a salary floor where teams have to spend a certain amount. And that's fine because teams generally earn within the same ballpark of each other. In in football, it's it's not possible. Now, what I would say is that that was if if the Super League had gone ahead, all those teams would have been earning a similar amount. So a salary cap and a salary floor would have been uh, would have been possible. But you couldn't turn around to Manchester City and Liverpool and Arsenal and United and, and Chelsea and Spurs and say, right, the most you can spend on wages is two hundred and fifty million, but everybody has to spend two hundred million as a floor because you couldn't turn to Burnley and say, right, you've got to spend two hundred million on wages. You just couldn't. So I don't think that would work. But you could bring in a salary cap and say, right, it's it's going to be this, but there's no floor on it. Now, that might prompt some teams to try a little bit less. Cronkies, I'm looking at you. Glazers, I'm looking at you. But, yeah, I, I do like the idea of a salary cap. I do. Um, the draft wouldn't work because you would have to centralize all the academies or make all the academies separate from the clubs. And I don't know how that would quite work. Um, they've done, they've done things like instant replay much better. They've done things like th- their versions of VAR. They're much, much better than what we have. So those would be things I would definitely like to, like to see, um, to see happen. um, and the coach's challenge is an interesting one. It it is generally an interesting one. It's an interesting idea. Maybe you penalize a manager that he loses a substitute if if his challenge goes against them. I think it's a they lose a timeout, isn't it? If they if the challenge goes against them in in the NBA and in the NFL, I think they lose a timeout. I could be wrong about that, but I'm almost certain that's the case. So maybe you could do that. Maybe they lose a substitution. 
But again, with three subs, maybe if it was five subs, I think that would be fairer. Um, Emmett, a.k.a. Emmett, if you were um, planning a takeover of an existing club to create a new European super club, taking into account location, league, stadium, fan base, and squad, what club are you picking? Um, somebody has responded, Keith and Chase responded, Nice. And and that would be a great option, but they don't have the big fan base. They've got a great stadium. Location's amazing. They already have a mega rich owner. Their owner is the richest man in Britain. I would say Marseille because their fan base is enormous. They've got an incredible stadium. They've got great history. I love the location on the south coast of France. I think there's a lot of good vibes about Marseille. I, I would go Marseille. I think they would be, I think, because I think players would love, because you could, you could play for Marseille and live in Saint-Tropez. So I don't know that you're offering players much of a bet. You could build a new training ground close to Saint-Tropez and say to the players, right, this is where you live and work. We go to Marseille for the games. But I, so I think that would work really, really well. Fan base is, is incredible there. Um, Chris Wall asks, can any team in Germany challenge Bayern consistently? How do they go about this? I mean, the only team with a real possibility, I think, is Dortmund in terms of just the size of the club. The likes of Wolfsburg and Bayer Leverkusen, they could do it because they have the financial backing, same as, as Leipzig. They do have mega rich backing behind them. They're not subject to the 50 plus one rule. So they could pump in more money, but FFP obviously kind of does negate some of that. But Dortmund could do it if they could hold on to their best players. If Dort, like, think about this, right? If Dortmund could hold on to Haaland, Reina, Sancho, Bellingham, the other, what's that young kid's name? Hang on one second. Right. Just think about this for a team, right? Long term. Haaland and uh, Yusufa Makoko up front. He's the biggest young striking talent in Germany. 16 or 17 years of age. Already been in the national under 21 squad. Those two up front. Sancho one wing. Uh, Gio Reyna the other. Angsernoff in in cover for both of those. Jude Bellingham in central midfield. You'd still have Emery Chan, who's still kind of you know in his prime. You'd have uh, Dahoud, who's in his prime. You'd have Julian Brand there. Like if they could hold on to all of those, that's an attacking, a midfield and attacking group with maybe one addition in the centre, centre of the park that could challenge Dortmund. They've got some decent options at the back. You know, I I, do, I think Zagadou can can develop into a very good player. I think Mori can develop into a good player. I like Akanji. I like Nico Schultz. I like Rafa Guerrero. You add a quality goalkeeper and a a good midfield option, a fourth midfield option, a younger a younger version of Witzel, maybe a younger ball winner, destroyer. And I think that's a team that you could develop over a couple of years to challenge. Bayern consistently. They also own Bellardi, another good option at centre-back. Um, Sergio Gomez is a talented player. 
But the problem is they will get cherry-picked. So they will probably lose maybe Sancho this summer, Haaland next summer, maybe Bellingham the summer after. Reina will go at some point. All of these players will move on. And the problem is that Bayern will be one of the clubs that, that try and cherry-pick them. What holds them back is they, they just don't have the budget because of the 50-plus-1 rule. The 50-plus-1 rule holds the rest of them back. It really does. Um... What is the worst all-time Liverpool eleven? Um, Bogdan in goal. John Flanagan at left-back. Stephen Wright at right-back. Socrates. No, not Socrates. What was that? Kyriakos. Kyriakos at centre-back. I'm going to stick Lovren in there just because I couldn't abide him. Um, that's the back four. Midfield, and th- this is not an old time in fairness, because in fairness, Torben Picnic would be in. Torben Picnic should probably be in. Uh, actually, you know what? I'll go Picnic and Lovren. That'll that'll keep me happy. Um, Isvan Cosma would have to be in the midfield. I think Jay Spearing has to be in the midfield. Lazar Markovic, just because of how it worked out, he has to go in. Such a shame. What a talent he could have been. Um, I'll go Barini, Lambert, and Balotelli up front, just for the laugh. Um, Chris Wall, again, if Mane is sold this summer, then imagine Salah forced his way out in the same window, what would be the best way for Liverpool to address this? Um, Sancho and... Sancho... So if Salah goes, you're talking about probably 150 million. Mane's probably 75-ish. I think you get Sancho for about 80, Rafinha for about 45 to 50... I think you go and you buy you buy a good number nine. I think you think, I, I I genuinely don't know if I'm being completely honest. Completely honest, I I I genuinely don't know what the best way to address it would be. I, I would say Sancho and Rafinha go to a four four two, play play Jota as a striker. And maybe bring in, say, En Naziri and Malin and have three good striking options. I would say that's probably it. But then you're, you're talking about bringing in four new attackers. So you're talking about a lot of upheaval in, in that area. You still have Bobby as well. You still have, well, Shaq and Origi, I think, will leave. But you'd still, you just have a lot there. Um, I'm, I'm actually not sure. Is the is the I I need to sit down and think about that properly. Um, sort of a vague question. This is from Armin Javeri. Sort of a vague question. With everything going on, are you optimistic for the future of Liverpool under FSG? Yes, I genuinely am. I genuinely am optimistic about the future because I think they are the right owners. I think they're actually very very good owners. Yes, they've made mistakes. Joining the Super League was not a mistake. Wasn't a mistake at all. Um, the furlough thing that was a mistake. The £77 tickets, that was a mistake of judgment. It wasn't a mistake. It was just bad judgment on who the audience were. Um, 
but I, I don't think they've made like the mistakes were like appointing Kenny permanently, uh, appointing Camoli as director of football rather than head of recruitment, allowing Brendan Rodgers to have autonomy. Those were mistakes, but I mean they still brought Michael Edwards and Jurgen Klopp to the club. They've, they've still done a lot more good than bad. So, and you know we did win a, a Premier League and a league and a Champions League. So yeah, I'm I am optimistic. I think we've got the right recruitment staff. We've got the right manager. The guts of a great team is still there. Allison's a great goalkeeper. Trent's a great right back. Robbo's a great left back. Virgil is the best centre back in the world. Kanate's on his way. Kabak is in house. Gomez will come back. That centre back group is is sorted. You need a backup goalkeeper. You've got Simicus the backup left back. You need a backup right back. So defensively, you need two squad players in midfield. Fabinho and Thiago as a pair, I think, could be one of the best pairings in the world. You'll have Henderson for depth. You need to bring in one more um, for depth, and you'll have Naby Keita. So you'll have five in midfield. That's ideal. The the attacking area is where I think things need to get sorted. But from what I'm hearing, but the players they are targeting, it does look promising. It, it does look promising. Uh, and finally, then Nick Turner. Um, well, he asked two questions. What do you think of recent reports of Florian Newhouse? I, I've answered that one, so hopefully you've heard that. And then, uh, is cousin Jeff actually your cousin? Yes. Yeah, so, so Jeff Hendrick, Jeff Hendrick's grandfather and my grandfather are cousins or were cousins. So we are very distantly related. That he he is like my second cousin. Once removed or twice removed? I, I don't know how it works. I think it's second cousin twice removed or once removed. Like it's a it's a tenuous link at best. But yeah, he is he is part of the very extended family uh, on my dad's side. So yeah, that is the case there. Uh, and that's that. That are all our questions for today. Thank you to everybody who sent them in. If I have missed any, I do apologize. Um, but I am just conscious of how long we have run here. Um yeah, thanks a million. Thank you to Guy, as always. I'd like to say a massive happy 42nd birthday from myself and Guy to Nina Kauser, uh, 42 years of old today. Uh, she's one of the people behind Anfield Index who does an awful lot of work. Obviously, a known podcaster as well, but she does a lot of work behind the scenes on AI along with Guy. They kind of keep the place running uh, so the rest of us can, you know, spout off at the mouth. Uh, so, yeah, happy set 42nd birthday to Nina, make sure you go and tweet her and say happy 42nd birthday. And um, yeah, that's it. Take care of yourselves. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.